Chapter Sixteen of the Decoration of Houses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. The Decoration of Houses by Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman. Chapter Sixteen. Bric-a-brac. It is perhaps not uninstructive to note that we have no English word to describe the class of household ornaments which French speech has provided with at least three designations, each indicating a delicate and almost imperceptible gradation of quality. In place of bric-a-brac, bibelot, objet d'art, we have only knick-knacks, defined by Stormonth as articles of small value. This definition of the knick-knack fairly indicates the general level of our artistic competence. It has already been said that cheapness is not necessarily synonymous with trashiness, but hitherto this assertion has been made with regard to furniture and to the other necessary appointments of the house. With knick-knacks the case is different. An artistic age will of course produce any number of inexpensive trifles fit to become, like the Tanagra figurines, the museum treasures of later centuries but it is hardly necessary to point out that modern shop-windows are not overflowing with such immortal toys. The few objects of art produced in the present day are the work of distinguished artists. Even allowing for what Simmons calls the vicissitudes of taste, it seems improbable that our commercial knick-knack will ever be classed as a work of art. It is clear that the weary man must have a chair to sit on, the hungry man a table to dine at, nor would the most sensitive judgment condemn him for buying ugly ones, were no others to be had. But objects of art are a counsel of perfection. It is quite possible to go without them, and the proof is that many do go without them who honestly think to possess them in abundance. This is said not with any intention of turning to ridicule the natural desire to make a room look pretty, but merely with the purpose of inquiring whether such an object is ever furthered by the indiscriminate amassing of ornaments. Decorators know how much the simplicity and dignity of a good room are diminished by crowding it with useless trifles. Their absence improves even bad rooms, or makes them, at least, less multitudinously bad. It is surprising to note how the removal of an accumulation of knick-knacks will free the architectural lines and restore the furniture to its rightful relation with the walls. Though a room must depend for its main beauty on design and furniture, it is obvious that there are many details of luxurious living not included in these essentials. In what, then, shall the ornamentation of rooms consist? Supposing walls and furniture to be satisfactory, how put the minor touches that give to a room the charm of completeness? To arrive at an answer, one must first consider the different kinds of minor embellishment. These may be divided into two classes. The object of art per se, such as the bust, the picture, or the vase, and, on the other hand, those articles, useful in themselves, lamps, clocks, fire-screens, book-bindings, candelabra, which art has only to touch to make them the best ornaments any room can contain. In past times such articles took the place of bibelots. Few purely ornamental objects were to be seen, save in the cabinets of collectors. But when Botticelli decorated the panels of linen chests, and Cellini chiseled book-clasps and drinking-cups, there could be no thought of the vicious distinction between the useful and the beautiful. One of the first obligations of art is to make all useful things beautiful. Were this neglected principle applied to the manufacture of household accessories, 
the modern room would have no need of knick-knacks before proceeding further it is necessary to know what constitutes an object of art it was said at the outset that though cheapness and trashiness are not always synonymous they are apt to be so in the case of the modern knick-knack to buy and even to make it may cost a great deal of money but artistically it is cheap if not worthless and too often its artistic value is an inverse ratio to its price the one-dollar china pug is less harmful than an expensive onyx lampstand with moulded bronze mountings dipped in liquid gilding it is one of the misfortunes of the present time that the most preposterously bad things often possess the powerful allurement of being very expensive one might think an advantage that they are not within everyone's reach but as a matter of fact it is their very unattainableness which by making them more desirable leads to the production of that worst curse of modern civilization cheap copies of costly horrors an ornament is of course not an object of art because it is expensive though it must be owned that objects of art are seldom cheap good workmanship as distinct from designing almost always commands a higher price than bad and good artistic workmanship having become so rare that there is practically no increase in the existing quantity of objects of art it is evident that these are more likely to grow than to diminish in value still as has been said costliness is no test of merit in an age when large prices are paid for bad things perhaps the most convenient way of defining the real object of art is to describe it as any ornamental object which adequately expresses an artistic conception this definition at least clears the ground of the mass of showy rubbish forming the stock in trade of the average antiquity dealer good objects of art give to a room its crowning touch of distinction their intrinsic beauty is hardly more valuable than their suggestion of a mellower civilization of days when rich men were patrons of the arts of elegance and when collecting beautiful objects was one of the obligations of a noble leisure the qualities implied in the ownership of such bibelots are the mark of their unattainableness the man who wishes to possess objects of art must have not only the means to acquire them but the skill to choose them a skill made up of cultivation and judgment combined with that feeling for beauty that no amount of study can give but that study alone can quicken and render profitable only time and experience can acquaint one with those minor peculiarities marking the successive manners of a master or even with the technical nuances which at once enable the collector to affix a date to his sevres or to his majolica such knowledge is acquired at the cost of great pains and of frequent mistakes but no one should venture to buy works of art who cannot at least draw such obvious distinctions as those between old and new sacks between an old italian and a modern french bronze or between chinese peach bloom porcelain of the kang he period and the japanese imitations to be found in every oriental emporium supposing the amateur to have acquired this proficiency he is still apt to buy too many things or things out of proportion with the rooms for which they are intended the scoffers at style those who assume that to conform to any known laws of decoration is to sink one's individuality often justify their view by the assertion that it is ridiculous to be tied down in the choice of bibelot to any given period or manner as though mazarin's great collection had comprised only seventeenth-century works of art or the colonnas the gonzagas and the malatestas had all drawn their treasures from contemporary sources as a matter of fact the great amateurs of the past were never fettered by such absurd restrictions all famous patrons of art have encouraged the talent of their day 
but the passion for collecting antiquities is at least as old as the Roman Empire, and Greco-Roman sculptors had to make archaic statues to please the popular fancy, just as our artists paint pre-Raphaelite pictures to attract the disciples of Ruskin and William Morris. Since the Roman Empire, there has probably been no period when a taste for the best of all ages did not exist. Julius II, while Michelangelo and Raphael worked under his orders, were gathering antiques for the Belvedere Cotille, under Louis the Fourteenth, Greek marbles, Roman bronzes, cabinets of Chinese lacquer, and tables of Florentine mosaic, were mingled without thought of discord, against Lebrun's tapestries or Berin's arabesques, and Marie Antoinette's collection united oriental porcelains with goldsmith's work of the Italian Renaissance. Taste attaches but two conditions to the use of objects of art, that they shall be in scale with the room, and that the room shall not be overcrowded with them. There are two ways of being in scale. There is the scale of proportion, and what might be called the scale of appropriateness. The former is a matter of actual measurement, while the latter is regulated solely by the nicer standard of good taste. Even in the matter of actual measurement, the niceties of proportion are not always clear to an unpractised eye. It is easy to see that the Ludovici Juno would be out of scale in a boudoir, but the discrepancy, in diminishing, naturally becomes less obvious. Again, a vase or a bust may not be out of scale with the wall space behind it, but may appear to crush the furniture upon which it stands, and since everything a room contains should be regarded as a factor in its general composition, the relation of bric-a-brac to furniture is no less to be studied than the relation of bric-a-brac to wall spaces. Much, of course, depends upon the effect intended, and this can be greatly modified by careful adjustment of the contents of the room. A ceiling may be made to look less high by the use of wide, low pieces of furniture, with massive busts and vases, while a low-studded room may be heightened by tall, narrow commodes and cabinets, with objects of art upon the same general lines. It is of no less importance to observe the scale of appropriateness. A bronze palace Athena, or a cowled medieval pleureur, would be obviously out of harmony with the spirit of a boudoir, while the delicate graces of old Saxe or Chelsea would become futile in library or study. Another kind of appropriateness must be considered in the relation of objects of art to each other. Not only must they be in scale as regards character and dimensions, but also, and this, though more important, is perhaps less often considered, as regards quality. The habit of mixing good, bad, and indifferent in furniture is often excused by necessity. People must use what they have. But there is no necessity in having bad bric-a-brac. Trashy ornaments do not make a room more comfortable. As a general rule, they distinctly diminish its comfort, and they have the further disadvantage of destroying the effect of any good piece of work. Vulgarity is always noisier than good breeding, and it is instructive to note how a modern commercial bronze will talk down a delicate Renaissance statuette or bust, and a piece of deck or mint in china efface the colour values of blue and white, or the soft tints of old Sèvres. Even those who set down a preference for old furniture as an affectation will hardly maintain that new knick-knacks are as good as old bibelots, but only those who have some slight acquaintance with the subject know how wide is the distance in conception and execution, between the old object of art and its unworthy successor. Yet the explanation is simple. In former times, as the greatest painters occupied themselves with wall decoration, so the greatest sculptors and modellers produced the delicate statuettes and the incomparable bronze mountings for vases and furniture adorning the apartments of their day. 
a glance into the window of the average furniture shop probably convinces the most unobservant that modern bronze mountings are not usually designed by great artists and there is the same change in the methods of execution the bronze formerly chiselled is now moulded the iron once wrought is cast the patina given to bronze by a chemical process making it a part of the texture of the metal is now simply applied as a surface wash and this deterioration in processes has done more than anything else to vulgarize modern ornament it may be argued that even in the golden age of art few could have walls decorated by great painters or furniture mountings modelled by great sculptors but it is here that the superiority of the old method is shown below the great painter and sculptor came the trained designer who formed in the same school as his superiors did not attempt a poor copy of their masterpieces but did the same kind of work on simpler lines just as below the skilled artificer stood the plain artisan whose work was executed more rudely but by the same genuine processes this explains the supposed affectation of those who like things just because they are old old bric-a-brac and furniture are indeed almost always worthy of liking since they are made on good lines by a good process two causes connected with the change in processes have contributed to the debasement of bibelots the substitution of machine for handwork has made possible the unlimited reproduction of works of art and the resulting demand for cheap knick-knacks has given employment to a multitude of untrained designers having nothing in common with the virtuoso of former times it is an open question how much the mere possibility of unlimited reproduction detracts from the intrinsic value of an object of art to the art lover as distinguished from the collector uniqueness per se can give no value to an inartistic object but the distinction the personal quality of a beautiful object is certainly enhanced when it is known to be alone of its kind as in the case of the old bronzes made a cire perdu it must however be noted that in some cases as in that of bronze casting the method which permits reproduction is distinctly inferior to that used when but one object is to be produced in writing on objects of art it is difficult to escape the charge of saying on one page that reproductions are objectionable and on the next that they are better than poor originals the united states customs law have drawn a rough distinction between an original work and its reproductions defining the former as a work of art and the latter as articles of commerce but it does not follow that an article of commerce may not be an adequate representation of a work of art the technical differences incidental to the various forms of reproduction make any general conclusion impossible in the case of bronzes for instance it has been pointed out that the cire perdu process is superior to that by means of which reproductions may be made nor is this the only cause of inferiority in bronze reproductions the nature of bronze casting makes it needful that the final touches should be given to bust or statue after it emerges from the mould upon these touches given by the master's chisel the expressiveness and significance of the work chiefly depend and multiplied reproductions in lacking this individual stamp must lack precisely that which distinguishes the work of art from the commercial article perhaps the safest general rule is to say that the less the reproduction suggests an attempt at artistic interpretation the more literal and mechanical is its rendering of the original the better it fulfils its purpose thus plaster casts of sculpture are more satisfactory than bronze or marble copies and a good photograph of a painting is superior to the average reproduction in oils or watercolour the deterioration in gilding is one of the most striking examples of the modern disregard of quality and execution in former times 
gilding was regarded as one of the crowning touches of magnificence and decoration, was little used except where great splendor of effect was desired, and was then applied by means of a difficult and costly process. Today, after a period of reaction during which all gilding was avoided, it is again unsparingly used, under the mistaken impression that it is one of the chief characteristics of the French styles now once more in demand. The result is a plague of liquid gilding. Even in France, where good gilding is still done, the great demand for cheap gilt furniture and ornaments has led to the general use of the inferior process. The prevalence of liquid gilding, and the application of gold to furniture, and decoration not adapted to such treatment, doubtless explained the aversion of many persons to any use of gilding in decoration. In former times the expense of good gilding was no obstacle to its use, since it was employed only in gala rooms, where the whole treatment was on the same scale of costliness. It would never have occurred to the owner of an average-sized house to drench his walls and furniture in gilding, since the excessive use of gold in decoration was held to be quite unsuited to such a purpose. Nothing more surely preserves any form of ornament from vulgarization than a general sense of fitness. Much of the beauty and propriety of old decoration was due to the fact that the merit of a work of art was held to consist, not in substance, but in design and execution. It was never thought that a badly designed bust or vase could be saved from mediocrity by being made of an expensive material. Suitability of substance always enhances a work of art, mere costliness, never. The chryselephantine Zeus of Olympia was doubtless admirably suited to the splendor of its surroundings, but in a different setting it would have been as beautiful in marble. In plastic art everything depends on form and execution, and the skilful handling of a substance deliberately chosen for its resistance, where another might have been used with equal fitness, is rather a tour de force than an artistic achievement. These last generalizations are intended to show not only that there is an intrinsic value in almost all old bibelots, but also that the general excellence of design and execution in pastimes has handed down to us many unimportant trifles in the way of furniture and household appliances worthy of being regarded as minor objects of art. In Italy especially, where every artisan seems to have had the gift of the plasticatore in his fingertips, and no substance was thought too poor to express a good design, there are still to be found many bits of old workmanship, clocks, appliqués, terracottas, and carved picture frames with touches of gilding, that may be characterized in the terms applied by the builder of Buckingham House to his collection of pictures. Some good, none disagreeable. Still, no accumulation of such trifles, even where none is disagreeable, will give to a room the same distinction as the presence of a few really fine works of art. Any one who has the patience to put up with that look of bareness so displeasing to some will do better to buy each year one superior piece rather than a dozen of middling quality. Even the buyer who need consult only his own pleasure must remember that his very freedom from the ordinary restrictions lays him open to temptation. It is no longer likely that any collector will be embarrassed by a superfluity of treasures, but he may put too many things into one room, and no amount of individual merit in the objects themselves will, from the decorator's standpoint, quite warrant this mistake. Any work of art, regardless of its intrinsic merit, must justify its presence in a room by being more valuable than the space it occupies, more valuable, that is, to the general scheme of decoration. Those who call this view arbitrary or pedantic should consider first the importance of plain surfaces in decoration, and secondly the tendency of overcrowding to minimize the effect of each separate object, 
however striking in itself. Eye and mind are limited in their receptivity to a certain number of simultaneous impressions, and the oriental habit of displaying only one or two objects of art at a time shows a more delicate sense of these limitations than the western passion for multiplying effects. To sum up, then, a room should depend for its adornment on general harmony of parts, and on the artistic quality of such necessities as lamps, screens, bindings, and furniture. Whoever goes beyond these essentials should limit himself in the choice of ornaments to the labors of the master artist's hand. End of chapter 16